a multi-site, multi-thousand person church in St. Louis. And that comes on the heels of, you may have heard it in the national news even, the implosion of Mars Mars Hill Church up in Seattle about a year ago with, um, with Mark Driscoll. Neither man was involved in a sex scandal. Neither man was incu- accused of embezzling funds from the church coffers. Uh, n- neither man was involved in an extramarital uh, affair. So if it wasn't money and it wasn't sex, then what was it? You know, it was power. Um, both were forced to resign because of domineering, authoritarian leadership. Both were forced to resign because of their refusal to be mutually accountable to other ministry leaders, because of their lack of self-control, their domineering attitude over those in their charge, and a misuse of power and authority. What's especially tragic, I mean, beyond the fact that, you know, it besmirches the name of Jesus and it does irreparable harm to the church. But even beyond that, what's so frustrating is Jesus has told us a whole lot about this. He warned us many, many, many times about the temptation of power and the misuse of power. It was at precisely this point he said that Christian leadership is supposed to be distinctly different. He said, what Mark chapter 10, whoever would be great among you must be your your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It's, it's sad that for many of you, when you hear the words church leadership, you, uh, you don't associate it with Jesus' words in the, in the slightest. You associate it with the power model of leadership, realpolitik, which focuses on how to get people to do things that you want them to do, how to attack and win, how to devise clever strategies to apply pressure and manipulate people to get them to do what you want, all the while believing that it was their idea. Now, what comes to mind when you hear the words church leadership? Woohoo! <laughs> Well, here's what comes to Peter's mind. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and as a witness of Christ's sufferings, who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of the flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because, Proverbs 3.34, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, 
under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let's start out with a vocabulary lesson. I know that is not the most scintillating way to begin a sermon, but there are three words that Peter uses here which are significant, and they have pretty much the same meaning. These three words, number one, elder. The Greek word for elder is the word presbyter, presbuteros, hence Presbyterian. I almost entitled this sermon, Why You Should Be Presbyterian, but I thought that sounded a little snarky. So, Elder is presbyter. Second word is shepherd. That is repeated a number of times. The Latin word for shepherd, do you know what is basically the Latin equivalent? It turns out that it's the word pastor. So elder, shepherd, pastor. And then thirdly, he speaks about overseeing the flock, or sometimes when it's put in the noun form, overseer. Which, when you translate that into the English, you end up, strangely enough, with the word bishop. Elder, pastor, shepherd, bishop. As far as First Peter 5 is concerned, all of these refer to the same things. I mean, you go through church history, and they end up meaning different things down through the centuries, but at least as far as the first century was concerned, the leadership structure that was established was you would just have elders who were expected to shepherd the flock. I think it's very important that Peter here never uses the word priests to describe these men. Um, Somewhere along the lines in the translation history, and I meant to look it up this week and I forgot to do so, but... Basically, when they were translating presbyter very early on, and I don't know exactly how early, but they messed it up, and they translated presbyter as priest. So that's why in a number of Christian traditions, you you have priests that are presiding. But I I don't call myself a priest. I I don't want to be a priest, even though I think their robes look really cool and and their collar. But who are the priests in the New Testament? You guys are really quiet this morning. (laughs) You are. You are. Now, most of what Peter says here to the elder, shepherd, shepherd overseers of the church, most of it carries over and is transferable into other areas of leadership that God might call you to. So before you write the sermon off as hopelessly not applicable to me, realize that lots of it is transferable as a parent or if you in the marketplace as an administrator, as a teacher, as a, as a counselor. You'll have to do a little bit of work to transfer the principles, but, but they are transferable. Three things that God tells us here about leadership. Three-point sermon. It is humble leadership, number one. It is Number two, guiding and protecting leadership. And then number three, it's mutually humble and submissive leadership. Look with me at the beginning of verse one. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. It's quite remarkable that throughout the letter of 1 Peter, he only one time refers to himself as an apostle. Now, here is the man who was effectively the, uh, the leader of 
the original leader of the church in Jerusalem, he also, at least according to what, Eusebius, the church historian, founded the church at Rome, which I don't believe, but many believe that. And among all of the apostles, Peter would have been considered the first among equals. You, you would kind of expect him to trumpet that authority and power that he has to this church, but not a word of it, not a single word of it. When it comes to this section of the leader, or to, to the letter, he is content to say, all I am is a fellow elder. All I am is another older guy in the congregation called to leadership on the same terms as you are. You know, when we think of leaders as We think of larger-than-life figures who are good at working a crowd of people who can shake a million hands and act like you're their best friend and they kiss babies. and They're they're great with working a crowd. But Peter says something especially ironic at the end of verse 1. Look again there with me. He says, I appeal to you as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings. Do you find anything strange or funny about that statement? He wasn't a witness of Christ's sufferings. He was a chicken who ran away from and failed to witness Christ's sufferings. He was an abject failure um, until the very dramatic event that is narrated for us in John chapter 21. They're up on the Sea of Galilee fishing and he hears a voice from the shore. And you can imagine the scene. There's fog in the early morning shore. And he just hears the voice. He recognizes that voice to be Jesus's. And instead of keeping his distance in shame, what does he do? He dives into the water. And he swims to that voice. And there in front of the resurrected Jesus, Jesus says, Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Tend my lambs. Do you love me, Peter? Take care of my sheep. And there, there in God's grace, he reinstitutes him as a, a pastor. And I think the number one thing you want in an elder or a church leader of any capacity is you want somebody whose heart has been humbled by grace. Since biblical leadership is always a matter of humbling yourself and serving other people, you want somebody whose heart, who has tasted deeply of the grace of Jesus Christ. So much so that grace is stitched into their DNA and they know themselves to be an abject failure who's been restored as a miracle of God. Um, This stands in stark contrast to James and John as they were walking down the road with Jesus one day and Their mother was there. The request they made of Jesus was, Hey, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, be sure to let us sit on your right hand and your left hand of your throne in your kingdom. Or, I was reading the New York Times, and they were interviewing former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg. And this quote that I have here, it has no commentary on his politics. You, You can determine that for yourself. But, Quote, Mr. Bloomberg has very little doubt about what would await him at the judgment day. Pointing to to his work on gun safety, anti-obesity measures, and anti-smoking, 
uh, laws. And he said, I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm headed straight in. If there is a God, I have earned my place in heaven, and it's not even close. Versus Peter's, if there is a God, and I know there's a God, I've earned my place in hell because I've abandoned him. But he was gracious to me. And that's what you want stitched into the heart of you know, any church leader. They're, they're humbled by grace. Number two, and I'm going to take this from verse number two, guiding, protecting leadership. He writes, be shepherds of the flock that is under your care. Be shepherds of the flock that is under your care, watching over them. The assumption being that these elders, they were able to identify those who were under their care and who were part of their flock. You know, some people have used this as an argument for church membership. Maybe. I'd say at the very least, it's an argument for against church hopping, jumping around Sunday after Sunday, maybe following the celebrity preacher circuit. Um, uh, that's not much of an issue here in Boise because there aren't really any celebrity preachers. But we do with the internet. We go to the, the, the church of the couch, you know, <laughs> with our favorite pastor, our favorite preacher, she says, shepherd the flock whom you know to be under your care. And actually, elsewhere in the Bible, he says, you will, give, you will be forced to give an answer for the sheep that are part of your flock, whom you were supposed to take care of. And it's also, it's also an argument that you shouldn't spend your entire church life in anonymity. You're supposed to be a known entity. Known, a sheep that is known in the flock. What is the basic job of a shepherd? Well, it's a pretty simple job description. Shepherd has two things he's supposed to do. He's supposed to protect and he's supposed to feed. Basically, don't get eaten and make sure that they are being well fed. The job description of a shepherd is really classic. The classic image of it is the rod and the staff of Isaiah, Psalm 23. The rod was much like a billy club that the shepherd would tuck into his belt and use to fight back predators. And the staff was what he'd use to pull, gently pull, or sometimes yank sheep and turn their, themselves from one direction to, to another. We've said this before. Shepherds are not cowboys. Thanks, thanks be to God. <laughs> they don't sit atop their horses, hooping and hollering, shooting off guns in the air like they're on a cattle drive. They, shepherds don't carry whips. They're not supposed to crack the whip over the backs of the sheep. No, a shepherd goes before the flock and leads them into green pastures through, the, through their gracious care. And there's a much more intimacy associated with shepherding than there is with ranching. I mean, the sheep, we read this in what, John 10 again. Jesus says, uh, they know my voice. The sheep, they know him. They know his smell. They know the, the scent of him. There's a, there should be, uh, if you're part of a church and you don't know any of the elders or any of the pastors of, of a church, you're, you're probably not really part of a church. 
You know, and it's not that the cowboy hates the animal. It's just that the cowboy doesn't need to know the animal quite in the same way as a shepherd does. He doesn't need to know them as personally. In fact, he probably doesn't even want to know them as personally because a cowboy is leading the animal to slaughter. The cowboy is interested in getting the meat out of the cow. The, the shepherd is interested in, in, what is the shepherd interested in? The production of wool. Ooh, wool. <laughs> a, a healthy, reproducing creature. And he develops a personal knowledge of each of their animals. The shepherd knows all the markings, and he calls them by funny names like White Nose and, and Blackie, and I, I don't know, but shepherds in the first century actually did that. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he is directly contrasting that with all of the wretched shepherds that were part of Israel's history and past. He's... All of the indictments of the shepherds of Israel, like Jeremiah 23 or Ezekiel 34, which talk about how bad those shepherds tended to be. And and the culminating idea of of church leadership is you get a shepherd who's willing to lay down his life for his sheep. In the entirety of the Old Testament, there's not a single example of a shepherd laying down his life for his sheep until it comes to Jesus. And then that's what ends up happening with all the apostles. Like every single one of them. They get crucified upside down. They, they're flogged. Every single one of them ended up laying down their lives for the sheep. Verse 2. So here are the characteristics of a good shepherd, or at least several of them. I'll read them t- together. It says, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over him, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. You're to take uh, this role voluntarily. I was listening to or reading one of my favorite New Testament uh, professors is a guy by the name of Scott McKnight. Scott was traveling in England, and he was meeting with one of his friends there who was a rector in the Church of England. They're driving around through the countryside, taking in um, just the beauty of, of the greenery of England in, in the summer. And his, his buddy said, Man, I hate my job. I just absolutely hate this. It is so hard. It is is terrible. And I mean, you hear that from pastors. And and Scott McKnight was trying to be sympathetic. But he he said, why do you hate it? Why did you ever become a pastor in the first place? Why did you ever become a shepherd in the first place? And he said, because my my parents made me. Because I had to. Because that was just part of... That's why preacher's kids are not always supposed to be preachers. <laughs> and elders' kids are not always supposed to be elders and deacons because you need to do it voluntarily, he says. Not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain or greed, but because you are eager to serve. And then verse 3, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Examples to the flock. Right here, Peter is, is leaving absolutely no room for hypocrisy among the church's leadership. And that's a, <laughs> that is a sobering thing for me as a pastor. I know that I, I cannot preach about giving away your money unless I give away my money 
and you look, you should be able to look in at my checking account or my bank account and see that I I put my money where my mouth is. I can't I can't call you to purity on the internet or on television without doing that myself. I can't call you to be hospitable and open your home to other people if I don't open up my own home. I can't ask you about daily prayer and Bible study and fasting and without doing all of that myself. Peter is leaving no room for hypocrisy. And we hear all the, the terrible sex scandals in the church with pastors and stuff. But when they go back and they do the postmortem on those guys, like 90% of them, they're not personally accountable to anybody. They've completely done away with this idea of, of reading the scriptures for their, for their own soul's nourishment. They've, they've ended up jettisoning all of these different things that they're calling their church to every Sunday. But uh, they've played the hypocrite. And but for the grace of God go I. But for the grace of God, go any one of us. Ernest Shackleton, you may recognize that name, the intrepid explorer who set out on four different occasions to cross Antarctica. How many times did he do it successfully? I, I, can't, I thought it was a, did he do it twice? Two of the four times? In any case, you may have heard of an advertisement that he took out in the London Times. This would have been about 19, 1915-ish. He's recruiting. He's trying to find men who will go with him on this expedition. And so he takes an advertisement. It reads, Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return doubtful, Honor and recognition in event of success. Contact Ernest Shackleton for Burlington Street. Anybody heard that of that one before? Now, here's the, the catch. It's, uh, it's probably not real. Historians have actually gone back and combed the archives of the London Times throughout the, the beginning of the 20th century, and they have not been able to find this advertisement in a single one of them. The first time this shows up is in a book in the 1940s. This is probably... This advertisement did not originate with Shackleton. In fact, he never even wrote it, but, but it kind of, it did originate with the Apostle Peter. Long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful. That describes parenting. <laughs> Hazardous journey for low wages. That definitely describes a lot of helping professions. Counselors, long hours, low wages. Um, that describes a lot of teachers and classrooms. And it certainly describes being a deacon and an elder. I don't, I don't want to brag and embarrass my elders in the, in the church, but if you had any idea how much time they spend and how much trauma they bear, and how much they get paid for it. <laughs> you know, big fat goose egg. Just the amount of stress they bear. They have to ask themselves on a weekly basis, is it worth it? And, I, and their spouses and kids, it's like, take this job and shove it. This is, 
I mean, in the role, again, helping professions and deacons, you can end up having more traumatic conversations with people in one month than some people have in their entire lives. And that trauma, the stress of it, just... If, if there is one word I could use to describe a shepherd in God's church, the word would be completely, you feel completely inadequate, which is two words. <laughs> we talk about what shepherds do. They're supposed to feed and protect. But the way that shepherds feel and the way that uh, fathers feel sometimes and mothers feel, you feel absolutely, completely inadequate for the task that God has called you to. It's just like inadequacy flows out of your body like blood and water. It's like, um, oh, it's like, it's like sitting down to dinner at a fancy restaurant and seeing the prices on the menu and realizing that you don't have that kind of money in your pocket. It's kind of a, uh, you experience that shortfall. And I, I, I'll say, I've never met a, a shepherd who didn't feel that way. Never met a single shepherd who didn't feel just utterly, nakedly insufficient for what it is. We see that with Moses, don't we? And Isaiah and Jeremiah. How do we, how do we cope? How do we deal with this, this tremendous sense of inadequacy? And again, this isn't just for, for elders. This is for any of us who have given places of influence and authority and leadership. How do we cope with it? Well, in the PCA, we have this book. It is called The Book of Church Order, a.k.a. The Blue Binder, which if you know what the blue binder is, that means you're, you're part of the inner ring you know, in, the, in the church. All it is is an instruction manual on how to go about with the minutia of church business. Book of Church Order, BCO. When I was in seminary, the man who ended up teaching my church government class, he was one of the original authors of the Book of Church Order. His name was, he's gone to be with the Lord since, Jack Williamson. Jack Williamson was from South Alabama, and he had such a southern accent that even southerners couldn't understand what he would say, couldn't understand what he was talking about. Well, one day in class, Mr. Williamson stood up. He was an elderly gentleman back in 2000 and uh, it been 2000 or 2001. And he said to us, gentlemen, who holds the highest office in the Presbyterian church in America? Who holds the highest office in the Presbyterian church in America? So every one of us are going through the roster in our head of denominational officials. You know, oh, okay, Roy Taylor is the stated clerk. Paul Koistra is head over MTW, Mission to the World. Uh, Rod Mays is the head of Reform University Fellowship. And then it dawns on us, this is a trick question. So one of the kids, or one of the kids, well, I guess we were kids back then, one of the students raises his hand and says, I know the answer, Dr. Williamson, or Mr. Williamson. All elders have the same authority in the Presbyterian Church in America. There's not a single one who is uh, above the others. That's who holds the highest office. And he shook his head. And he said, actually, gentlemen, it says in our preliminary principles that the Lord Jesus Christ is the king and head of his church. 
And he holds the highest office in the land. I'll never forget that. What he's saying is, the man who holds the highest office is the chief shepherd. And you are his, his, his flock. It's such a misnomer when I, and I do this all the time. I talk about Tim Keller's church up in New York City or Mark Driscoll's church in Seattle. I mean, that's bogus, isn't it? You are my flock. I mean, you're sort of, because I'm an under-shepherd. But it's like when you're borrowing somebody else's car, do you drive it a little bit more carefully if you don't own it and they do? You you treat it with uh, kid gloves if you don't own it. You're Jesus' flock. And so going back to the question, how do we deal with the inadequacy? It's... It's constantly remembering and saying, Lord, this is your flock. And if this is going to get pastored or shepherded or led in the right direction, you're going to have to supply the, the energy, the giftings, and strength for, this, for it to happen. And that's what he does. What does he do when he comes to Moses, when he comes to Isaiah? He says, the, the refrain to elders, to deacons, to any church leaders is, I will be with you. I will be with you. And that must be sufficient. Thirdly, and briefly, the third characteristic of leadership is, I called it mutually humble and submissive leadership. And I'm taking this from verse 5. Verse 5 where it reads, uh, second half of the verse, all of you, so this is the entire church, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because, and he cites there Proverbs 3.34, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. It seems like an innocuous enough statement here. Clothe yourselves. Remember that in their world, your social status was really uh, determined or noted to the rest of society via your clothing. So depending on the stripes that you wore on your toga, the big, thick, purple stripes would say that you were a senator. The the thin, purple stripes would say that you were an elite. There was a certain type of cap called the freedman's cap, which, you guessed it, was worn by slaves who were no longer slaves. You could tell somebody by their, their clothing. If you're walking down the street, people might raise their chin up and take notice of you or or nod the head, or show, do, show some form of deference to you if you were wearing a certain kind of clothing, or ignore you entirely if you weren't. Now, here Peter says, how are you supposed to clothe yourselves? What status are you supposed to clothe yourselves in? The H word. <laughs> Humility. And, and, and not in the whole Uriah Heap kind of Go around telling each other all the time how very humble we are. But the, the, real, the real thing, clothe yourselves. Every single person in the church is supposed to clothe themselves in the status of humility. And it comes with a threat. Did you notice that? It's a, there's a threat here. Life is hard enough without having God as your personal enemy. <laughs> but that's what he says is that if... God opposes the proud, but gives 
you know, grace and favor to the humble. That is a frightening statement, isn't it? Given our political landscape today, he is actively opposed to the proud, which presumably means the proud church, the, the, the proud husband and wife, the proud family, the proud nation, but he gives grace to the humble. In 1910, I got a couple of early 20th century stories today, but in 1910, Henry Morrison and his wife were returning back to New York City after 40 years of missionary service in Africa. Back in those days, you didn't come home for home furlough. There was no get to come home during the summer. I'm glad things are different now, and the Mannings get to come back pretty much every summer. But back then, no, you were there. It had been 40 straight years without Henry Morrison and his wife ever seeing their family and friends or seeing their home country. Well, as the ship is pulling into New York Harbor, to their amazement, there are thousands of people standing on the shore, bands playing, flags waving, everybody is cheering. They're looking out the the porthole and seeing this crowd and thinking, oh yeah, (laughs) what a homecoming. But unbeknownst to them, there was another passenger on the ship returning from Africa. This passenger had spent 40 days big game hunting on a safari. He had killed an elephant and a lion. Oh, you know, what a what a hero. He had killed an elephant and a lion over 40 days. And that man was Teddy Roosevelt. And back then everybody was so enamored with the Roosevelt and the I don't know, just the excitement of safari. that They turned out in thousands to greet him as a celebrity. And as Henry and his wife got off the boat, as the story goes, there was actually not a single person there to greet them. After 40 years of missionary, not a single person there. I mean, they had to hail a taxi. Reflecting on this, he, later on, he said, I felt so resentful. This is wrong, God. The president comes back from a hunting party and everybody throws him, him a party And we've spent 40 years of missionary service and no one seems to care. But then it probably was from the Holy Spirit. He just heard that still quiet voice. He heard those words. spoke to him and said, But my son, you are not home yet. Imagine that homecoming when you are greeted by thousands of Africans whom you brought to the Lord. You are not home yet. I believe that's the crown of glory. That's the crown of glory he talks about in verse 4. It's not a crown where, you know, hey, look at me. The the glory is is the homecoming, the celebration for, for all the souls, all the people you took care of. And I want to just say to him, to my elders and my deacons, especially, um, to my music leader, <laughs> I, I know that if I start listing people, I'm going to forget people, but I, there's so many times it just feels like this is not worth it. People don't care. Nothing goes right. <laughs> Sheep bite. <laughs> but you're not home yet. Verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, then you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Amen.